1: Uh, Good morning, everyone, and thank you for being here.
2: It's May 29th, 2019. D.C. is in the middle of a muggy, steamy heat wave. It feels like midsummer. Hail is even predicted.
1: Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office.
2: After years of round-the-clock speculation and silent investigation, much of it conducted in skiffs, the hushed compartments that are basically tombs for deeply classified information, Special Counsel Robert Mueller finally speaks. This is the day much of America has been waiting for. As his office has issued indictment after indictment, Mueller himself has stayed mum. He's come to be regarded as an oracle, and indeed His words are delphic.
1: The appointment order directed the office to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This included investigating any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign.
2: To the surprise of those watching, Mueller's voice is noticeably less certain, more gentlemanly, and more modest than the cacophony around his investigation, especially those boisterous figures in his sights.
0: There is no circumstance whatsoever under which I will bear false witness against the president nor will I make up lies to ease the pressure on myself. When
3: you look at what my father's accomplished in the last two years, when you look at his winning track record... It
4: took two years, they looked at everything. Prosecutors do the charge that they don't charge,
1: you know... The,
3: the largest witch hunt, the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Imagine what he can do now with that cloud off of his back.
1: Now, I have not spoken publicly during our investigation. I'm speaking out today because our investigation is complete. The Attorney General has made the report on our investigation largely public. We are formally closing the Special Counsel's Office, and as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to return to private life. But beyond these few remarks, it is important that the office's written work speak for itself. Let me begin where the appointment order begins.
2: This is After Trump, Episode 4, Prosecuting a President. The
0: broadsides aimed at top officials from the Justice Department raise questions about the president's relationship with Attorney General Jeff Sessions.
5: I think it would be suicide for the president to fire him. I think the less the president says about this whole thing, the better off he will be.
0: Shut this phony deal. This is going to be a fraud like you've never
5: seen. Shocking statements on the rule of law in the United States of America. They just
0: don't want to report the truth, and they've been calling us wrong. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. No
1: president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever Ever cross
0: that line. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total.
2: And that's the way it's got to be. Everyone except the staunchest Trumpites had high hopes. For the revelations of the Mueller report, Russia specialists, Trump opponents, citizens in shock at the administration's flagrant lies. After a year of what came to be known as the drip, drip, drip of revelations surrounding the investigation and fully 34 indictments of both Russian nationals and people in Trump's circle, it seemed likely that the report would expose the president himself. And maybe it would lead to more high-profile indictments that would bring justice to a nation that had been defrauded by a hostile foreign power. But the results disappointed a lot of people. The president, of course, had claimed all along that the whole thing was a witch hunt. Now, before the report itself was even made available to the public, he erroneously claimed that it let him entirely off the hook. It's
0: a scam, It's something that shouldn't be allowed, and it's a very bad thing for our country.
1: It's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably
0: in history, but in American history, the entire thing has been a witch hunt, and uh, there is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign. President Trump is claiming
3: victory after the release of the Mueller report.
2: The report points to 10 episodes of possible obstruction, including the president's firing of FBI Director James Comey, and it suggests the president tried to seize control of the Russia probe.
0: And they're having a good day. I'm having a good day too. It was called No Collusion, No Obstruction.
2: At the same time, many who read the report believed that the chief witch hunter hadn't done everything in his power to bag the big witch.
3: So is Mueller really about to be done with his investigation without fully flipping Manafort and, oh, by the way, without ever getting a presidential interview in front of the grand jury? His
1: remit
5: was so tiny that looking into Trump's business ties with the Russians
0: would be outside of the scope. Well, then why do you think he obstructed justice?
3: I think that eventually we really needed to do a full financial investigation um, of the president. I think we should have subpoenaed the president. And I think we should have come out with a conclusion about whether he obstructed
2: justice or not. Now,
5: Director Mueller, can you explain in plain terms what that finding
4: means so the American people can understand
2: it? Still others contend that Mueller got it just about right. Here's Lawfare's editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes.
0: I've always thought that Mueller got a bit of a bad rap, honestly. He put in a single 400-page document really everything that Congress needed if it wanted to do its job. He described in enormous detail how the Russians interfered in the 2016 campaign. He described the degree to which the Trump campaign cheerfully benefited from that interference, sought to encourage it, and how figures close to Donald Trump actively engaged with what they knew to be Russian government actors or their cutouts for electoral benefit. And he detailed the president's sustained campaign to obstruct the investigation of all of this. He did all of this in a remarkably brief period of time, And that seems to me far more significant than whatever errors people think he made or whatever steps he took that people may disagree with. It's not really Mueller's fault that Democrats in Congress didn't seek to press the matter and that Republicans in Congress sought to defend the president in the face of conduct that was, frankly, indefensible.
2: This is the starting place of Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer as well.
5: I think it's important to recognize that the system did work remarkably well.
2: That's Jack. He's a professor at the Harvard Law School who served as a senior official in the Justice Department under George W. Bush. His book with Bob Bauer, After Trump, Rebuilding the Presidency, is the basis for this podcast.
5: It was an extremely unusual situation. I mean it was it couldn't have been a harder situation to test these regulations. It was partly counterintelligence, partly criminal It involved a president who was, you know, norm-breaking beyond belief.
2: The surprise here, Jack points out, is not that Mueller did a particularly bang-up job. The surprise is that the special prosecutor was able to do his job at all.
5: Mueller was able to conduct and finish his work. He was not eliminated. He was not fired. Trump tried to fire Mueller. He called for it publicly. We know from volume two of the Mueller report that he tried to get many of his assistants to get rid of Mueller. He tried to get Sessions to reverse his recusal. He tried to get McGahn to get Mueller fired. He tried to get others to get Mueller fired. And no one would do it.
0: McGahn says he recounted the president asked him to have Mueller fired on multiple occasions. He refused, and refused to lie about those conversations later. If I wanted to fire Mueller, I would have done it myself. It's very simple, I had the right to. Among the
5: reasons why Trump's subordinates wouldn't fire Mueller is that through a combination of law and norms, they thought it was the wrong thing to do, and they worried about breaking these laws and norms. So this is actually an important reminder that even in the Trump era, when the president himself was disregarding the norms, the norms and the underlying law and obstruction of justice as applied to his subordinates still did work. And so I would say that, you know, at least in some respects, the special counsel regulations have to be deemed a success.
2: Ah, regulations. Before we return to Trump's cinematic breaches of laws and norms, we got to do some homework. So what are the special counsel regulations? Here they are in a nutshell.
1: This is a special report. Here is CBS White House correspondent Dan Rather. Good evening.
4: In breathtaking succession tonight, the following historic events occurred. The president of the United States demanded that the attorney general fire special prosecutor Archibald Cox.
2: After Watergate, Congress passed a law to allow independent counsels to handle investigations of the president and other top administration officials. These prosecutors could not be easily fired. The law was intended to prevent a reprise of Richard Nixon's firing of the Watergate prosecutor Archibald Cox, This came during a firing and resignation bloodbath in 1973 that came to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre.
4: The Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, refused and resigned. The president then ordered the Assistant Attorney General, William Ruckelshaus, to fire the special prosecutor. Ruckelshaus refused. The president immediately fired Ruckelshaus. Solicitor General Robert Bork quickly was named Acting Attorney General. Bork was ordered to fire Special Prosecutor Cox, he did. The FBI, acting upon orders from the president, sealed off the Special Prosecutor's office.
2: But the independent counsel law was not a hit with partisans. Republicans hated the Iran-Contra investigations, during the Reagan-Bush administrations.
4: For over a week now, it has been the hot topic, the Iran-Contra hearings, Oliver North's
1: performance, John Pondexter's revelations. President Reagan carrying out policies that he strongly believed. He thought he was serving the country in what he did.
2: And Democrats despised the investigations conducted by Kenneth Starr that led to the Clinton impeachment
5: a defining day for the future of President Clinton, Special Prosecutor Ken Starr, Congress, and the country. Here's the latest. Details of the Ken Starr accusations are
0: officially out.
4: Dan, this report accuses the president of lying, obstruction of justice, tampering with witnesses before the grand jury.
0: I believe that I was called upon to give you my judgment and my assessment, and I have done that. But it is the responsibility of the House of Representatives to use this to the extent that it wants,
5: This is a tool. This is only a tool for you to use as you see fit.
2: When it's your guy in the hot seat, it's inevitable you think the other side overzealous. So Congress let the law die, and the Clinton-era Justice Department replaced it with a set of internal regulations designed to strike a balance between presidents gone wild and special prosecutors gone wild. But let's just say they didn't have the creative imagination— to envision the scenes that played out during the Trump administration.
0: Former acting Solicitor General of the United States, Neil Katyal, convened a working group of the Justice Department in 1999, and that working group wrote the regulations for the special counsel. Ultimately, the prospects FOR WHAT IS NOW ROBERT MUELLER'S SPECIAL COUNSEL INVESTIGATION INTO THE TRUMP-RUSSIA AFFAIR. THERE ARE WAYS FOR A PRESIDENT TO TRY TO INTERFERE WITH A SPECIAL COUNSEL INVESTIGATION. SURE, THERE ARE ALL SORTS OF WAYS A PRESIDENT CAN STYMIE A SPECIAL COUNSEL, BUT THE REGULATIONS WERE DRAFTED WITH A LOT OF INPUT FROM, YOU KNOW, ERIC HOLDER, JANET RENO, THE BIPARTISAN GROUP ON THE HILL TO TRY AND SAY SUNLIGHT, is the best way to try and avoid a president who's gonna try and interfere. So all of those options that you mentioned, like firing Mueller or ordering the deputy attorney general to fire Mueller, all of those are things that would have to be forced out into the sunlight um, and the president would then have to justify what he's doing. And so that's the idea behind the special counsel regulations. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
2: To get started visit plushcare.com/ weight loss that's plushcare.com/ weight loss so this new system worked for a while but it also had weaknesses Andrew Weissman who worked in Muller's office believes changes to the special counsel regulations are needed
3: so let me start by saying that I don't have any issue with um, like the people and the animus the, the uh, animating Uh, factors that led to the current special counsel rules. In other words, they were reacting to the Ken Starr situation and trying to figure out how to ameliorate that. And we are now reacting to how that played out in a different context. Um, And looking at some of the things that happened and saying, you know, it's not some of the things that were ameliorated. It's not worth it. Um, So, for instance, uh, Ken Starr very famously issued a very sort of very public salacious report, and, and it also went directly to Congress. So a lot of the rules tried to cabin that. But when you were in a situation where you have a, a president um, who was not complying with basic legal concepts and norms, um, and you had an attorney general who was willing to go along with that and enable it. Um, th- those rules um, were fine in one context, but in this context served to be an impediment to what I viewed as sort of a, a better way to, to run things.
2: Jack and Bob agree that Mueller's investigation into Trump's Russia ties surfaced problems with the regs.
5: There was broad popular support for Mueller and for his uh, you know, his report and the basically where he draw, where he drew the lines. That said, um, we think, we think that there, uh, that the process revealed a number of problems.
2: So, what were those problems?
5: There was confusion about the relationship between the attorney general and the special counsel. You know, there was a lot of attention given to Barr and how he, shaded the report when it first came out and how he reached a different conclusion than Mueller on whether or not Trump could be prosecuted, Mueller not taking a stand, Barr saying he couldn't be prosecuted on the facts stated in the report.
0: In a four-page letter to the judiciary committees in the House and the Senate, newly appointed Attorney General William Barr has written a short narrative description of the content of the final report that has been prepared by special counsel Robert Mueller. A
5: rift now coming into public view between the special counsel on the one hand and the Attorney General of the United States On the other, The Washington Post breaking this story late last night, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, wrote a letter to Bill Barr, the attorney general, after Barr issued that four-page summary document explaining the fundamental conclusions of the special counsel's report. What Mueller was frustrated about, he said was that that document did not fully capture the context and the substance of what the Mueller report said. Uh, And Mueller was apparently concerned that there was public misperception now about what
1: he had ultimately found about the president's conduct. The order appointing me special counsel authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and we kept the Office of the Acting Attorney General apprised of the progress of our work. If we had had confidence that the President clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the President did commit a crime. The Special Counsel's Office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, It was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider.
4: William Barr's views of presidential power are so radically mistaken that he is simply the wrong man.
5: The special counsel's report goes on to consider whether certain actions of the president could amount to obstruction of the special counsel's investigation. As I addressed in my March 24th letter, the special counsel did not make a traditional prosecutorial judgment regarding this allegation. Instead, the report recounts 10 episodes involving the president and discusses potential legal theories for connecting those activities to the elements of an obstruction offense. After carefully reviewing the facts and legal theories outlined in the report, the deputy attorney general and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. We proposed a series of reforms to clarify that relationship. And because it was confused, Mueller didn't follow the letter of the regulations in part because they weren't specified very well, in part because it didn't fit his case. Barr didn't follow them completely. We think that relationship needs to be clarified. And to to put it simply, we think that the attorney general needs to be clear that he controls the law enforcement and prosecutorial decision function. So in some sense, we would perhaps um, surprisingly enhance the authority of the attorney general.
2: The logic here is a little confusing. Barr interfered with Mueller's probe. So are Bob and Jack just reiterating that Barr had the authority to do so? Sort of, but not really. Here's the thing. You can't prevent the AG from mucking around in what the special counsel does. Ultimately, in this case, Mueller worked for Barr. He was appointed by the AG's office, and the attorney general can send him packing. What's more... What Mueller says can be overruled if the special counsel opts not to decide a matter like, say, whether the president broke the law, the attorney general can make his own call. So what Bob and Jack are proposing here is to clarify that the attorney general gets the last word, but also to make it crystal clear when an attorney general refuses to respect the will of the special counsel on prosecutions
5: for giving the attorney general more legal authority and more legal control over the case is basically every decision that he makes adversely to the special counsel about not allowing it to go in a certain way or about disagreeing with it about an investigative step. That has to all be reported to Congress. Basically, Congress and the public need to be made aware of anything the attorney general does that arguably tamps down on or curbs the special counsel's investigation.
2: This would leave the special counsel free to make a full report on the facts as he or she sees them and to make that report public without the attorney general being allowed to interpret the report for the public while it's still secret.
5: We fully embrace what we call the accountability function for the special counsel, by which we mean that the special counsel, especially when investigating the president, the vice president, and senior officials, his or her only job is not to make a prosecutorial decision about whether the law was violated. Invariably, his or her job, especially in the context of something like a, at least a partly counterintelligence investigation that took place with Mueller, his or her job is to find out what happened and let the American people know what happened. The one major thing that we think should be put in the regulations is we think that, that inevitably what a special counsel does in this context is going to be to issue a report about what happened. And Mueller did that, and he didn't call it an impeachment report, but it operated like that. So we would just have that built into the statute to try to make it factual uh, and not have legal interpretation.
2: This idea jibes, at least in part, with one of Weissman's concerns about the way the regs operated.
3: We could not um, indict the sitting president. That it's not that I'm not saying that we would have, it's that that was not something that was ever um, a possibility um, because we were part of the Department of Justice. So um, that's sort of one clear way in which um, the way the special counsel rules worked, um, we were uh, hamstrung. Another was this problem of what I call the audience, which was. The special counsel rules were written such that we were writing a purely internal prosecution memorandum for the attorney general to consider um, or the acting attorney general in the same way that prosecutors do day in and day out um, we had a little more leeway and a little less leeway than than the united states attorneys because of the rules. But it was just a purely internal memo. And so that gets written one way. But because it was so obvious and it became clear that the attorney general was going to make the report public, we were sort of caught in this. The rules say you write it and it's for this audience. But in fact, it was more like a 9-11 commission report. So I, I think there's a huge problem in terms of the rules, in terms of who the audience is. And I understand it's because... They were reacting to Ken Starr, but I think that it was a mistake in retrospect to have had the audience be so internal.
2: Bobs and Jack's proposal would fix that problem. The question is whether it would set up another Ken Starr-like situation.
5: There's no perfect solution here. These independent counsel or special counsel investigations will always be controversial. They'll always be fraught with this problem between too much and not enough independence. They'll always be politically contested. And ultimately, how well they work will depend on the people who are occupying the main roles. Who's the special counsel? Who's the attorney general? Who's the president? How much does he or she respect the system? There's no way to write those factors into law. So there's no way to get this balance perfect.
3: The question of whether you can indict a sitting president, is it something, is it a policy that should change at the Justice Department? You know, for
4: 40 years, the position of the uh, executive branch has been you can't indict a sitting
1: president.
0: Everything indicates that a president can be indicted after he is no longer president of the United States. What about a sitting president? I think that is an open discussion in terms of the law.
1: Bottom line legal issue is the president is not above the law.
2: But all is not perfect harmony between Jack and Bob. Where's the fun in that? These two are legal scholars after all. They like to debate. While they both observe that Trump is guilty of what Jack sometimes refers to as more than crimes, Bob is convinced that he should be prosecuted after he leaves office. While Jack is skeptical about prosecutions of an ex-president to prosecute or not to prosecute. I call this the Bauer-Goldsmith perplex, and it's a particular obsession to observers like me with too many opinions and too few law degrees. My avenger side wants to see Trump in handcuffs, but my tired side just wants to forget all about him. There are a lot of possible crimes the new administration might seek to prosecute if it were so inclined. There's the Mueller stuff, first of all, Remember that Mueller specifically didn't decide whether Trump had committed obstruction of justice. There are also those payments to Stormy Daniels, that uh, adult film actress, a matter for which Michael Cohen pled guilty in the Southern District of New York. A Justice Department that wanted to pick up the ball on any number of things has options, but should it take those options?
4: One of my concerns is that we have an OLC opinion that puts the president out of reach of prosecution, not investigation, but prosecution while he or she is president. And then we have a sort of muddled view overall of what should happen in a post-presidency. And there's a view, and I don't want to overstate it because there are nuances to this view, but there's a view that we have to be very, very cautious about one administration initiating an investigation of the next. I think that's a fair concern. And that there are divisions in the country that those investigations create and a healing process, particularly after a highly controversial administration that it prevents, and that we have to weigh that in the balance. And I think those are perfectly reasonable concerns, but I think they're overridden by the need to pursue the evidence where we find it.
2: From Bob's point of view, if the president can't be prosecuted while he's in office, and we have too strong a norm against prosecuting him after he leaves office, then he really is above the law, at least in a practical sense.
4: To me, the question is, where do we land when we say that we want to hold presidents accountable to the law, that the presidents cannot be above the law? Of course, as in any criminal case, conscientiously, impartially, fairly, independently pursued by the Department of Justice. That is not to say that I'm arguing for some special commission that looks under every table in every file drawer everywhere for any evidence of wrongdoing, whether we have any reason to believe it's there or not. But if evidence does surface and there is a criminal case to be investigated, then I think it needs to be investigated.
2: But Jack sees it differently.
5: So I try to approach this from what is, I think, is overall best for the Biden administration, for the country, and ultimately, as paradoxical as it sounds, for the rule of law. And I'm I'm very skeptical that a robust investigation and especially a uh, an indictment and prosecution of Trump will, on balance, be good for the country or the Biden administration or the rule of law. I begin from the premise that. It's going to be very hard, absent some evidence that we don't yet have, to prosecute Trump for any known crimes. Take, for example, the crime of obstruction of justice. As we explain in the book, there are serious questions around uh, the availability of the obstruction of justice statute as currently written to apply to the president.
2: You remember this issue. It's the one we discussed in the last episode, the one on which Jack and Bob suggest that the law needs to be clarified.
5: There's a serious question about the constitutionality of applying obstruction of justice to the president when um, he engages uh, in when he exercises an article II power related to obstruction of justice. And all of the other crimes, bribery is the best counterexample, but all of the other crimes, I just think it's going to be very hard for legal reasons and pragmatic reasons to actually reach a conviction of Donald Trump. And therefore, you have to ask yourself, if that's true, you know, what what are the costs of the process?
2: There's more.
5: If we have a robust investigation by one administration of the acts in office by the prior administration and by the prior president through the lens of criminal law. um, and 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 I just want to emphasize that Trump was a despicable president. And if there were ever a president that warranted this investigation, it would be him. I just fear that that is going to set a precedent that will become regularized. In the current Washington environment, I just fear that, that whatever normative constraint there is about doing this, however appropriate or not, I fear, I fear that it will become a regular aspect of the transition. I think that would be terrible for our democracy.
2: On the face of things, this seems like a pretty fundamental disagreement. Jack makes a priority of maintaining the tradition that presidential administrations don't go after their predecessors. He's also more skeptical that there's even a case to bring against Trump. Bob, for his part, believes strongly that there has to be accountability for presidential criminality.
5: If something emerges where, for example, um, there's clear evidence of a crime that I think Uh, Is prosecutable, for example, under the bribery statute if Trump is accepting bribes for a pardon? There's reason to think that that type of prosecution might be more successful than instruction of justice. My view would change with the certainty about the criminality of the president and the certainty of a a conviction. But I'm very skeptical.
2: And Bob, on his side, considers this a very real possibility.
4: I'm not so sure uh, that I dismiss the possibility of damning facts, or that I rate as uh, low as Jack does the likelihood of a successful prosecution if those facts emerge, I do think, and I think this is particularly important in the wake of what's happened in the Trump administration. Underlying assumption here is that we are going to have an independent, credible criminal investigative process that we're going to have people of the caliber of. of a Merrick Garland, and I'm not pointing to anything in particular in this administration. I want to be clear about that. I'm just saying a, of that caliber, a Justice Department that appears to be trying to restore the fundamental norms, finding a way to go about doing this professionally, impartially, and in a way that would withstand public scrutiny.
2: In the other direction, Bob is not gunning for Trump's prosecution. It's more that he believes matters need to be investigated.
4: I do want to make it clear. It's not like I'm thirsting for this. Everybody understands this country is in the midst of a pandemic. We have massive problems that we're facing, Uh, the economic and social stresses uh, that the pandemic has generated on top of the ones that we were already experiencing. And so there's a large national and international agenda the next administration has to address. And having Donald Trump once again occupy however he occupies its center stage is not attractive. And that's where the press coverage will typically go. And that's unfortunate. But I do think that given this administration, this president's uh, indifference and, in fact, sometimes contempt expressed for the law and uh, the very real possibility that evidence will emerge that needs to be followed, I would I would be in favor of aggressively following it and just working out the politics as we go along with a Department of Justice that can acquit itself
2: and jack does not really oppose following the various investigative threats the main
5: difference i think between us is likelihood is that we disagree in our assessment of the likelihood of success my ultimate view and i could be wrong about this my ultimate view is that absent evidence of quid pro quo bribery and pretty concrete evidence of the type that would satisfy the intent standard under the bribery statute that I just don't – and, and absence that Trump doing something that we haven't even imagined that might implicate uh, another criminal statute that we're pretty confident would apply to the president, and I haven't seen that yet, I'm just very skeptical that there's you're going to be able to um, overcome the legal hurdles, the many legal hurdles that we discuss in the book, uh,
4: um, to prosecuting a president. One thing that has changed since Jack and I uh, wrote this exchange in the book and have since been talking about it that I think really raises the stakes for any decision to resolve doubts about whether to pursue an investigation in favor of the ex-president. I think one thing that colors it necessarily uh, are the events of January 6th. I know this is a divided country, so the messaging on this, the way in which an investigation is announced, uh, the transparency practices that are adopted are all going to be quite critical. But I think it's going to be very difficult to a large part of the public at this point to give this ex-president, if there is a question about whether to pursue legitimate, credible evidence, to give this president the benefit of the doubt and say, no, we need to stand back here because, you know, at the end of the day, it might not prove
0: fruitful.
2: In one sense, maybe we should be thankful we've never had to grapple with these perplexing issues because a president has never run as wild as Trump did. But there's a real precedent being set in the government's approach to presidential criming. It's not just about Mueller Trump or Biden or Merrick Garland. It's about renovating the whole system to make plain when and how a president is held to account. This podcast is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. The series is executive produced and hosted by me, Virginia Heffernan, from the Goat Rodeo team scripting and audio production from Zachary Frank, editing and executive production by Ian Enright. This episode was written by me, Benjamin Wittes, and Zachary Frank. From the Lawfare team, production assistants from Rohini Kurup and Bryce Clem, Benjamin Wittes' editor-in-chief, special thanks to Andrew Weissman. Subscribe to this series for more episodes of After Trump, and be sure to help our work by leaving us a rating and review. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening.
5: You're listening to Go Rodeo.